There is um, the marks that are referred to, numbers that sometimes get labeled with being associated with evil things or evil people. 666 is one that sometimes jumps out, and I remember several times in my journey people making some very unusual calculations of turning somebody's name into mathematical equivalents that somehow added up, and all of a sudden there was an evil empire lurking right outside my door. So to help with the early service, um, one of the musicians for our uh, prayer time played a hymn out of the hymn book, and I don't think he did this intentionally, but it was hymn number 666, which I thought was <laughs> so great for this opening message on Revelation. That's kind of the tone that um, you have when you jump into this book. What's, what's the big mystery, the key that's going to unlock it all? I have, I'd say pretty intentionally, attempted over the course of my years here to try and keep political commentary out of our morning messages to leave that to you to take what scriptural principles there are and apply it appropriately. I'll have to confess that in these three weeks, I find it almost impossible not to step somewhere into the political conversation for this reason. Revelation speaks in to the political setting at the time in which it was written. That's what it's about. So I need to try and bridge that in a way that makes sense for us as we read it and then figure out the ways in which it applies for us today. So at the outset, let me confess some of the ways in which I love the country into which I was born and the country in which I live. I am fully aware that this is not the country of origin for many people who attend our service, and I understand that. So I'm not trying to set this country up against another, but acknowledge some of the things that are, um, for me, bring joy to my journey in being part of this place. One of those I was reminded of through a letter that came in the mail a few weeks ago, a letter that several of you have received, very similar to mine, that invites you to participate in jury duty. I happen to be one who loves jury duty. It's not that I want to get out of my work. I love my work and enjoy what I do, but it's so different from my work. It is in such stark contrast to what my weekly routine is. So I get my paperwork ready and go. For those of you who have been invited to participate in jury duty, there are several different courts that you might be invited to. I think the one that's most common, because it's the busiest court, the third busiest in the, um, uh, the country, I believe, um, is a, a court that meets right on Broadway, and you go in this large holding tank with hundreds of other people, and you wait for instructions. And 
And if you've been, then most likely, because he's done it all three times that I've been there, this elderly gentleman who's the longest presiding seated judge here in our county makes his way out, kind of a tiny frail man bent over a little bit, and he grabs the microphone, and when he grabs the microphone, he launches into this speech that for me is incredibly inspiring about what we get to do in participating in this great procedure of our country and how it sets us apart and what it means. And I know there are other people working on their smartphone or reading newspaper or magazine articles. I just get swept up in it, and I I just want to stand up and applaud at the end and just cheer. There is... The times I've been there, applause that happens, but I'm just, just so excited in that moment. So last week, I got selected and called up to one of the rooms, and we had a wonderful judge who did a similar kind of thing before all the questions started being asked, and the jury pool is, all of those who might be part of the jury pool are seated there, and he gives this wonderful little speech about his courtroom. And how in this place, the intent is that everyone find an equal footing. From the wealthiest to the poorest. From the most educated to the least educated. To those with status and power through their vocation. To those who are unemployed at this time. From young to old... They have the privilege of coming into that room and being on equal footing, whether you're in the jury box or whether you're seated at the table of defense or prosecution or you're one of the witnesses. You come to this place, you get the privilege if you've been accused to have your case heard by a group of your peers. And the peers get to make the decision of what takes place. Now, I get, I get that it doesn't always work the way it's supposed to work. I get that there are influences that sometimes get into the system. I understand that. But I also think that we are inundated in our culture with movies and TV storylines where it's gone wrong and we think that it goes wrong all the time when in fact it goes right most of the time. Where it works surprisingly well. But I just like this notion where at least an attempt is made for power to be pushed toward those people who are living underneath that power. That power somehow is entrusted to those who have a chance to make a decision about the community in which they live, the city in which they live, the state and country in which they live. I love that notion. I love that principle. Revelation is spoken into a culture where power has not been pushed toward the people, but where power has continued down a pathway 
where the powerful get more powerful and everyone else begins to be pushed to the side, marginalized, given no voice. And this book is written to confront and address power. So who's the audience for this book? Some say that the audience is you and me because we're living in a time to which it corresponds. And I would say at one level that's true because all Scripture is beneficial for teaching and instruction. And to take the principles that you find there and apply them to what we do, we do that all the time. It's what our church believes in, is to take God's Word and apply it to our lives. But John's real clear about the audience to whom John is writing. He, he says right at the beginning that this is written to the seven churches in Asia, a place not too far from where he's at when he captures this vision that he has in the island of Patmos. I'm not sure I'll get them all right, but the seven churches are um, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, um, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the seven churches to which he writes. And it appears as if they are churches where he has been, lived among them. They're not spread out all over Asia. They're in this area that we kind of know as Asia Minor, a, a closer-knit group, easy for him to have traveled to many of the places. And it seems from how he's written that he knows some of them pretty personally. My guess is he knows it in two ways. One is from experience, but secondly, knows it because the Spirit gives him insight. This combination of what's been known to him experientially and how the Spirit speaks into his life. And he writes to those seven churches. He said, these messages are for you. And he says some very specific things to each one of them. And then it appears following chapter 3 that the stuff that follows is a message that's intended for all of the churches and probably subsequently to all believers. It's possible that this is not John the Gospel writer. Some who speak to us about linguistics suggest that the language of Revelation looks different than the language of the Gospel of John. In fact, the John of Revelation is sometimes referred to as John the Divine. I don't understand how you can notice those differences, but that's because I'm not a linguist. But I had a very practical example of it this week. I was visiting somebody, and I asked the gentleman who was several years older than I am um, how he met his wife of 14 years, and he looked at me and he said, well, I met her online, which is a very common practice for people in my age group and every other age group, I think, these days. And he began to explain that um, he was, um, had put his bio information with whatever software program he was looking into, and, or online program, and he said he saw her bio and saw her picture, and apparently pictures are important in this process, and he said, so I initiated a written conversation to her, and she responded back. And he said, but her writing didn't match her biographical sketch. Her biographical sketch, she was a mathematician, she was well-versed in the sciences, 
and her writing seemed like she wasn't very well educated. So I thought, this is off, and he pursued it further because he was still interested, and he discovered that her country of origin was not the United States, and this was her second language. He said, oh, then it made all kinds of sense. So there is some discussion that the language in which John the Divine writes may not have been his first language, but the people to whom he wrote, they were his people. He had been there, he had lived there. And now he's in the, on the island of Patmos, most likely banished there by the emperor Domitian. So the Roman Empire, still kind of in a growth phase at this point in time, expanding its borders, Domitian ruled from about 81 A.D. to 96 A.D. He took over power when his brother unexpectedly passed away from an illness that took his life very quickly. When he passed away the very next day, they put Domitian into power. He ruled for about 15 years. And the way in which he ruled, strong in some ways, hard in others, but he carried a tradition that had begun much earlier in the Roman Empire, a tradition where the emperors were given the um, honor of deity. Now, this didn't happen all at once. It wasn't all of a sudden that they were worshipped as God, much like things happen in our culture. Someone who lived 150 years ago in our country might get a snapshot of what the country looks like today, and their response might be, wow, when was that decision made that that's okay or that it looks like that? And the response would be, well, it's something that happened over years. In some cases, things that happen over generations, over decades. Well, the same is true in terms of worshiping the emperor. It simply started out as the people trying to give honor to the one who was in power and making statements that gave honor. And then eventually those statements of honor became kind of a liturgy by which that took place. And then that response of worthiness to the emperor became that our emperor is a god, and then our emperor is the god, and our emperor demands our allegiance and our worship as god. There are some emperors who kind of pushed away from that. Domitian was just the opposite. He required of all of the people that at least once a year they pay homage. They could do other things in terms of their own um, worship that they did throughout the year, but at least once a year they had to go through a particular procedure that honored Domitian as the God. Well, this is very problematic for those who have a faith in the Almighty God. That's the conflict into which John the Divine is writing. Realizing the kind of persecution that they are receiving and will likely continue to receive. He himself, a political prisoner, 
banished because of the things that he did to the island of Patmos. I'm not exactly sure why he wasn't put to death, but he wasn't. And it was there that he had this interaction, this vision, this overwhelming sense of God's presence in his life being invited into the heavenlies. And as he writes this, he writes in a genre that's called um, apocalyptic. This is a particular genre of writing, and it's not restricted just to Scripture. There are other pieces of literature from that same time that have the same kind of feel to them. And when you read apocalyptic literature, you have to read it for the kind of literature that it is. You don't read poetry the same way in which you read novels. You don't read novels the same way in which you read biography. You don't read biography the same way in which you read comic books. The list goes on and on. Well, this is a particular type of literature that used very powerful graphic symbols, symbols that would capture the imagination of the people who would read it, that would transport them in their emotions, maybe to recoil or maybe to step into with enthusiasm. It might ignite flames of passion or it might cause you to step back in fear. Language that was larger than life in images that weren't trapped to the limitations of physics or time or descriptors that we might know if we were taking a picture of a particular setting. Beautiful, powerful language that we find here in Revelation. So after writing to the seven churches, John says he was invited up to the heavenly throne into the court of the Almighty. And there he saw the Almighty and described what that looked like in chapter 4. At the beginning of chapter 5, we have a description that the Almighty is holding a scroll. A scroll that contains seven seals. Now, we don't have scrolls these days, at least not like the people of that day did. We don't typically seal anything like they might have, but the imagery here is not foreign to them. The symbols that are typically used in um, apocalyptic literature are symbols that would be familiar to people so that they could participate in the reading to understand what it meant. This isn't the only kind of document that had seals on it, but a pretty common document that was sealed, and sometimes we find it was sealed seven times by seven witnesses who would testify to or give credence to your claim of what you owned. Much like a last will or a testament that described all that was in your possession. And it would be sealed by seven different individuals and only opened when it was the appropriate time and by somebody who had the authority to open up that scroll. That may be the imagery that is here, but at the very least, it's imagery with which they're familiar as important documents. And the question is asked in this heavenly vision, who's worthy? Who can open the scroll? And there's no one who can. No one steps forward. No one is able and John begins to weep and cry because there's no one who can open this scroll and find out what's inside. And then one comes up to him and says, don't cry, look. 
And in the center of everything, the 24 elders, the four creatures, the throne in the center, he's told, look, the Lion of Judah, from the line of David, there is one who is worthy to open the scrolls. And John turns, anticipating seeing this Lion of Judah. And in chapter 5, verse 6, he says, And there I looked, and I saw a lamb. Now the word that is used here for lamb, I don't think it's used any place else in the New Testament. It's um, Arion. It's not just a lamb. It's like a, a little precious lamb, like a lambette. And if that's not descriptive enough, it says, and this lamette looked like it was slain. That's not what you expect as the hero for the story. But that's exactly what this is. This is a crescendo, not just of this chapter, but of this entire book. And I would contend in some ways, this is the crescendo of all of Scripture. I turned and looked, said John, and there was an Arion, a lamb, a precious little lamb that was slain, seated on the throne, standing on the throne. And if that contrast is not enough, he will compare this Arion with Therion later on in the book. Therion is the beast, the larger-than-life monster, the biggest monster you could ever imagine. That's the villain. And in the midst of this storyline, the hero is this slain lamb. This is the antithesis of everything we think about power. Most of you know, because I've made reference to it several times, the wonderful opportunity I had to travel to the Holy Land a few weeks ago. The second to last day of the trip, we went through the, um, the Holocaust Museum. Very difficult to put in words what that experience is like. And I know the experience is different for everyone who goes through it. It's not just the storyline of one war in the history of the Hebrew people. It spans centuries, millennia. It is this long story of their journey and it's story upon story upon story upon story, room after room of articles and videos and pictures and paintings and biographies and, 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 and. It just goes on. The things that they have survived, that they have endured, the things that have been done as a group of people and using them as a scapegoat or as a object of those who are in power. 
And I, there were not too many words when I walked out to the museum and um, just tried to process some of what took place. It was very interesting to me in my own personal journey that within 24 hours of doing that, we went to the town of Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem, about five miles. And I think I would have expected, and maybe you would expect, that going to Bethlehem, what would be most memorable would be some of the, oh, you know, the nice biblical stories that we hear of Bethlehem, the birthplace of Christ. That wasn't what stayed with me. And I realize in what I'm about to say that my comment is overly simplistic, speaking about things that are beyond my imagination in terms of how complicated issues are. I understand that. But Bethlehem today is a city that's completely surrounded by a concrete wall and barbed wire fences. It's completely a Palestinian settlement, ruled in a different way than the other areas of Israel, governed in a different way than other areas of Israel. There's a different economic structure Those who are residents are restricted from traveling in other places without particular permits. And again, I understand that there are so many things I don't understand. But I confess that as I left Bethlehem and reflected on the museum that I had been through, I thought to myself, so when power changes... When it shifts, who's in control? Does anything really change about how power is used? It still bothers me. Again, so much I don't understand, but just from the external view, I begin to think about what I believe. And I, I believe this deeply that the Christian scriptures speak about power in a very different way. A very different way. A way that doesn't make a lot of sense initially. But it is exemplified in this passage where the hero of the story is the Christ, the slain lamb, who has given himself to those in power to allow that type of use of power to reach its natural conclusion, which was to put to death the lamb that laid itself down. But this book says that's not the whole story. The victor is the lamb. The reigning almighty creator is the lamb who was slain, standing at the throne in the place where God is. The seven horns designating power, the seven eyes designating knowledge and designating the spirit that emanates from God. So all three, the almighty, the lamb, and the spirit, together are God. entrusting power to you and me, giving us freedom to make choices 
But it's not that the lamb will be slain. There's hope in the future. It is that the lamb has been slain. Victory belongs to the lamb. We need to live into that understanding that that price has been paid. So John speaks to the seven churches in the midst of power where those who were in the ultimate power seat of their culture have called them to worship the emperor. I took some time this week to try my hand at apocalyptic literature to see if I could write something. I don't know why you're smirking. I hear a little bit of it out there. That's... And I wrote it because apocalyptic literature is supposed to be written. It was often read aloud, but it was often written, often written under a pseudonym. John's somewhat unique in that, in that he puts his name with what he wrote. I'm going to follow in John's tradition and just take ownership for this and say, this is my effort at writing apocalyptic literature for today. Here we go. A battle among the donkeys has commenced. An old donkey who is new to the donkey way is in a fight for his life against a female donkey who has battled these grounds before. Far more violent is the battle among the elephants. A blonde-haired one from the city and an evangelical one from the south. In time, times, and half a time, the elephants will circle in the north in the city of the Cavaliers, the Browns, and the Indians. And the donkeys in the land of brotherly love. Their battles will end and the victors will clash with one another in a bloodbath that will leave the country bruised and bleeding and the world will watch in shock. Packs will garner wealth and fill the waves with 30 and 60 second spots. You will surf the web and drown in the Twitter slander, bites of barbs and media jousting. Darkness will find a home in our homes before that fateful day, just before winter's dawn, when power changes hands and the house of white faces off with the house of 100 and the house of many representatives. The victor will roar like a lion and will attempt to rule the land of the bald eagle with an iron scepter. But there is a lamb, a diminutive lamb, a slain diminutive lamb, perfect in every way, who has conquered death. The lamb has taken the keys of my heart and walks not in the way of the donkey or elephant, but rather carries the armament of love. The lamb has broken the chains that have bound my heart has moved us from slavery to freedom, from blindness to sight, from being crippled to dancing, from crucifixion to resurrection, from death to life. Creatures from every nation are joining in the song of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the one who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. That's my apocalyptic literature effort. <laughs> 150 years from now, if somebody finds that in a journal, 
they would read that and go, what is this crazy writing? This makes no sense. Some of you are saying that right now. It still doesn't make sense to you. And talk to your neighbor before you leave and see if there's any sense to it at all. But in some ways, that's what Revelation feels like because we're not sitting under the rule that they were sitting under. But we're invited to step into that scene to hear John say, your circumstances, it's so easy to be driven by what's immediately in front of you. But I've seen the heavenlies. And the one who sits on the throne is the lamb who was slain. And as crazy as this sounds, the lamb is the victor. And we are the subjects of that kingdom. And we are called to follow in that way. It's not a promise that it's going to be easy. He didn't promise that to the seven churches. We don't get that promise today. But it is a victorious way of living because we understand that the battle's over. There are skirmishes that seem to be going on still all around us. But we live into the truth that on the throne stands the Lamb. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, mm. 